Hi, Katie here in Rome. If you listen to the podcast a lot and you haven't yet donated, please visit the donate page on our website, thebittersweetlife.net. Whatever you can give is so welcome and we're so thankful for it, you can't even believe. A little bit goes a long way, particularly when you're supporting art that's just coming from the ground up. Thank you so much for your support and for listening. It's nice to go on this journey together. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello. This is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. We are in Rome, and today we're going to talk about what we alluded to in the last podcast, which is sometimes different artists, movies, musicians, books send you on a slightly different trajectory, let's say than you might have had if you didn't encounter those things. And it could be you move to Texas, or it could be that you just think about the world in a slightly different way. And I think that that's true for a lot of expats. And I don't know, I was asking you, Tiffany, if a room with a view was the reason why you decided to move to Italy. I can't say that it was the reason, but it was the maybe the spark, one of the two sparks that sort of started that trajectory, as you say. I watched that movie for the first time when I was 12 years old. I had never been to Europe, and my mother had seen the film a couple of years. I think she saw it when it came out in 1985. She said, oh, I, you know, I recorded it. This was back in the day when a movie would be on and you would tape it on, on VHS. It was on TV. Yeah, it was on TV, and uh, had had commercial breaks that you had to fast forward through. <laughs> this is dating us. Oh, yeah. She said, you've got to watch this movie. You've got to watch this movie. And I thought, oh, it's going to be boring. No, you've got to watch it. You've got to watch it. And I was absolutely swallowed up by this movie. I can't even describe to you what it meant for me. It changed my life. I really do think so. And it's not because the message of the movie is so you know profound or deep or anything. It's just because it represented all that was romantic and exciting about Europe didn't matter that it took place a hundred years before. I actually went out and I got my mom to go out and buy me the book by E.M. Forster the next day. And I read it in one night. Now, I am a big reader. I wasn't a huge reader back then. I liked reading, but I wasn't a voracious reader at that age. And I had never stayed up all night, much less stayed up to read a book. So that just shows how obsessed I was with this story. When two years later, I went with my mom and my sister to France and Italy. We actually just went to Florence for a couple days. Most of the trip was in France. But when we were in Florence, I remember we were on an overnight train. And as soon as we, as soon as we got up in the morning, you know, the train was still, it hadn't arrived yet, but we were in Italy already. I was walking down a little corridor and the train jiggled and I bumped into someone. And I immediately said, as if it were the most natural thing in the world, I said, oh, scusi. And I didn't speak a word of Italian. I knew scusi meant excuse me, but I didn't speak Italian. I stopped. And I thought to myself, I can speak Italian now because I'm in Italy. I can, I'm allowed to speak it, is what I mean. I remember going to the Uffizi and going to Piazza della Signoria, all the places where A Room with a View takes place and just being 
immersed in this story. I, I totally missed all of the true history of Florence. At that age, I didn't care about like the actual history. All I cared about was the movie. But, you know, that's okay for that age. Yeah, I think that that was really when I thought to myself, I've got to get over here. This is where I'm meant to be. What is the story of that movie in brief? In brief, it's about a sort of uptight English girl, upper middle class English girl who goes to Florence with her older spinster cousin and encounters a young man and has her eyes opened by him to what kind of passions there are out there. And of course, the extent of it is a one kiss on a hillside. She goes back to England and she's supposed to marry this kind of nerdy guy. And little by little, she becomes aware that that is just not enough for her. You know, she wants that kind of passion again that she experienced so briefly. So it's interesting because sometimes when a movie hooks onto you like that, and particularly, I think, in the age that you were, 12 or 11 to 14 or whatever, that sort of highly influential age, right, where different things captivate you for different reasons, it's half the truth of the fact that you're in Italy and it's half your imagination as if you're you're walking in a romantic story that's in your head right oh absolutely I was her you know I was pretending I was her this lead character Lucy Honeychurch played impeccably well by Helena Bonham Carter in her corset years the time when she was playing only that kind of role I was in that world absolutely 100% then things changed for me and I became obsessed with opera and the subsequent times I went back to Italy, it was all about opera. I was trying to live in an opera. <laughs> <laughs> How do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. All I can tell you is I used to memorize lines from operas. Not just the actual music, but the words. Because I wanted to be able to speak Italian. Of course, I didn't speak Italian. But I just wanted to feel like I could. And so I would memorize these long lines of text from operas. And I would just say them out loud and pretend that I was having a conversation in Italian. Do you remember any of them? Well, most of them were from The Marriage of Figaro, which is an opera that I eventually performed. I would say the same when I was a little kid. This is not so much about inspiration, but I had on record Romeo and Juliet from the movie version that I think was made in the 60s or 70s, a record version of that movie. <laughs> And I loved to listen to it, particularly Juliet's death scene. So if you can picture a little tiny Katie at third grade or something like this, wandering around doing the, the death scene. And I knew all of her size, too. It wouldn't just be the Shakespeare lines, but it would be like, oh, you know, like, oh, happy dagger. This is thy sheath, there rest and let me die. But then I'd have all the exact moans that she had done. Except at the time, I didn't know how she died. Like, I didn't necessarily understand... The words that he was saying, even though she says, dagger, this is thy sheath, in my head, I didn't know. I'm like, maybe she falls off a cliff. <laughs> maybe she leaps to her death. Like, I knew that she was dying, but I didn't know how. And so I decided that she probably leapt to her death. And that's why the moans were the way that they were. That's great. That's great. A lot of cliffs inside tombs. Yeah, I know. It's, a, it's one of those aside stories, but funny things that you memorize where you really have no idea what you're talking about, but you're sitting at the dinner table doing Shakespeare lines or speaking Italian, you know, in an opera that you love. So I don't want to make that movie too dramatic, but that was one of the things that implanted yourself in your, implanted itself in your mind enough to move to Italy. Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't the one reason. It was part of the spark. 
funnily enough, it was also part of the spark that led me to fall in love with opera because if you've ever seen that film, the soundtrack includes two arias from Puccini operas and both of them are sung by Kirita Kanawa, still today one of my absolute favorite opera singers. I, of course, in my obsession with the movie, didn't just buy the book and read the book, but I also bought the soundtrack. And I would listen to it over and over and over again, and I just fell in love with these two arias. You know, my mom went out and she said, you know, I'm going to buy you a CD of Kirita Kanawa singing Puccini arias. And it had the text in it, in Italian, and the translation. And I just remember sitting there. It was the very first CD I ever owned. So what year did CDs come out? Around 1990? 94? No, 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 no. It was before that. 1990. Yeah, I think it was about 1990. 91, maybe? Yeah. I was definitely not in high school yet. I was probably 13. And I was always late to the program when it came to technology, so... (laughs) I just remember looking through the text of these arias and hearing the uh, Italian and, and looking at it and just falling in love, not just with the Italian, but also with the music. And I'd always loved to sing, and I'd sung a lot of musical theater. But that was the moment when I thought, you know what? Maybe I could sing opera. Maybe I could try this. I think it was the next year I started taking classical lessons with an opera singer, and I didn't end up going on to be a professional opera singer, but I did study it very, very seriously to, at the university level. Yeah, I remember that. I went to your final concert, I think. <laughs> yeah, that was, oh, seems like a long time ago. It was a long time ago, but not really that long ago. It was about 20 years ago, I would say. Really? Wow. Oh, no, that, no, no. It, it was college, not high school. It was the end of college, not the end of high school. Yes. Right. So, so what, 1999? Yeah, 15 years ago, 15, 16 years. Almost, almost 20 years ago. Yeah. Oh, short hop, skip, and a jump away. Well, what about Claudio? He hasn't moved abroad, but... It, it's not like you have to move abroad from a movie or something. It doesn't have to be that dramatic. We all have these artists that influence us or change our behavior, right? Well, as I've told you, Claudio does dream of moving abroad. He dreams of moving to the United States. Right. I think he's always maybe had that dream, but lately he has become obsessed with 20th century American literature. And he is reading everything he can get his hands on from Hemingway to F. Scott Fitzgerald, to John Steinbeck, and Philip Roth, everything. He particularly loves Hemingway. And I remember when I was pregnant, I said, you have to promise me that, you know, we're not going to stop traveling when we have a baby. And he's like, no, no, of course, because we both love to travel. He said, of course, you know, when the baby's about two, we can start traveling again. And I said, no, what do you mean? You know, <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, why should we stop traveling? Oh, you, we can't drag a baby around. Come on. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to work on him for this. Then he read The Movable Feast, which is kind of an autobiographical book by Hemingway about his years as a young man living in Paris with his first wife. And they have a baby in that time. And they traveled constantly. And it was so funny because after he read this, he said to me, you know, I was reading A Movable Feast and Hemingway traveled a lot with his baby son. We could probably do that. (laughs) And I was like, I was the one who told you we could travel with him. Now it's your idea? Okay, I'm just going to pretend it's his idea. That's a good Thank you, Hemingway. Yes, thank you very much. (laughs) That's an interesting thought, though, that he wants to be an expat in America, right? He wants to move abroad to America. 
some of that's from Hollywood movies, I know, because I know he has certain Hollywood movies that he loves in that certain locations when you guys were on your road trip that he wanted to see because of them. Like the steps in front of the Philadelphia Museum, <laughs> the right. Rocky steps. Yes. <laughs> Rocky, he was a big Rocky fan. It never occurred to me, but do you think he was particularly looking for an American woman due to these dreams that he had of moving abroad? You know, sometimes I have that suspicion and I definitely was not his first American girl. I think, you know, love happens where it happens. I think that's a bonus for him, that his wife is American. I'm sure it's a bonus. We should ask him about that. Yeah, we should. I think that he's not as interested in the expat life, per se, as he is in just America, just living in America. Yeah, he wants to move there and live there for the rest of his life. That's what he wants? Well, I don't know if he's, he would go that far, but he definitely wants to spend a period of a minimum of a few years living there. Do you have an idea of what it is that he's picturing? Like, why, why America? I think I've told you the uh, big empty roads, the lack of traffic. Well, where is this lack of traffic? Because if he moves anywhere in a city, there's going to be traffic everywhere. Traffic is prolific in the United States, just like in Italy. You know that. Um, it's not the same. Well, the driving is more rule-following. But otherwise, well, just the street. I mean, you, the streets, okay, the streets in the United States are made for driving on, period. Streets in Italy were made for walking or for horses. They're just not built the same way. They're narrow. They've got holes in them. They're maybe cobblestoned. And then there's a double parking, the rule, whole rule thing, people not obeying rules. We've talked about this before. Yes, but I would also argue that part of the problem with the United States in the fact that it's sprawling and has so many sections of it that are hideous is because of the automobile, because the entire country was developed quickly following the advent of the automobile into a driving culture. Yeah, thank you, Bob Moses. And that's what Claudia wants. He's like, I want a driving culture. I don't know. I mean, he, he definitely likes taking walks. It's not like he's adverse to it, but I think he finds Italy so inconvenient. I'm starting to see it as well as a new parent. And the neighborhood that we live in, Trastevere, is a great neighborhood to be single in or to be in a childless couple in. It's a great neighborhood if you don't have a car and if you work within walking or biking distance of your job. Then it is a fantastic neighborhood. But if you have kids, if you have, have to drive for work, to find parking, get your stroller in and out of narrow streets, it's kind of a nightmare. But back to books and films that have changed our lives. Would you say Rocky changed Claudio's life? Would he go that far? Uh, I've never talked to him about it, but he does have a big Rocky poster hanging in his old bedroom at his parents' house. So he loved it enough to buy the poster, oh, right? Yeah. No, I think that, I think it is. I think the, the, the sort of moral behind Rocky, which is go the distance, give it your best shot, do what you have to do to succeed, or at least try is a big thing for him. And it's so funny you said that I just remembered this. I just remembered this. When I was giving labor, I have to ask him what exactly he said because my mind is so foggy about those moments. But as I think we mentioned, I really was, I really wanted to have a natural childbirth without any medication. I was able to do it partially because of luck, things that I couldn't control, and partially because I was really determined and, and stubborn about it. Somewhere towards the end, or maybe even after, I can't remember, but he said something. He made an, a Rocky illusion. I don't know if he said, you went the distance. 
<laughs> I don't think he used those words, but I think something like that, something like you made me think of Rocky in the last fight. You did it. You did what you had to do. You made it. Isn't it so funny how ingrained movies can be in our brains that that in a moment like that you would think of a line from Rocky? No, it's nuts. It's so true, though. That's like exactly. But here's the ironic thing. How hilarious is it that a girl who was so inspired by this romantic movie that takes place in Italy eventually moves to Italy and has her own romantic story. And the day she's giving birth, her Italian husband <laughs> quotes her a line from Rocky. <laughs> It's perfect. That's a perfect... That should be a movie. That should be... It went full circle. That should be a movie plot right there. About what? That was perfect. Somebody um, go ahead and pay us for that, and we'll, we'll release the rights to the story. <laughs> well, one of the examples I can think of from my own family was that my sister, Sarah, really, really loved the movie Dances of the Wolves, which is a really long movie. I think it's one of three and a half hours long or something like that in a time when really long movies weren't coming out. Now it seems like every movie is that long, but it had that same sort of romantic notion. I don't know if you remember anything about that movie, but it's about a lot of loss and isolation and white settlers versus Native American people. It's not like the happiest film in the world, but for whatever reason, it had a sort of fascination for her to the extent that she got really interested in learning more about the Plains Indians. And it may have started just because, you know, a lot of those Native American guys are pretty hot in uh, Dances with Wolves. That's part of the reason why I went and saw it with her a couple times, <laughs> you know, general eye candy. So maybe that's what sparked the interest, or maybe it was the storyline, I don't know. But she got really interested in the Plains Indians and decided to go beyond the Hollywood version and actually learn about them a little bit. After she graduated from high school for her senior present, she asked my father to take her on a road trip where they went to visit where different tribes and different reservations along the Plains states, like South Dakota. Whoa. I know. And um, I don't know exactly what she had in mind. I feel like they ended up having a really good trip. But they got to invited to some powwows and all this stuff just by wandering in. It seems so bold. Uh, Sarah, I'm going to have to ask you about that. My sister listens to this all the time. What in the world? But one of the things that happened in that trip was that she actually met one of the guys that was in no. Dances with Wolves who just happened to be living on one of the reservations that she visited. Well, what are the odds? I know, right? Walking into your own Hollywood movie. But I'm sure it, hadn't, it didn't line up at all. It couldn't have lined up at all with whatever romantic notions that she had about Native culture. But it did maintain, and probably still is, a fascination of hers it influenced where she taught as a teacher, what she taught. Fascinating stuff. Wow. All from a Kevin Costner movie. Who would ever guess? That movie won an Academy Award, though, for Best Picture. Well, it was really well done. And I would say from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, another Kevin Costner movie, I wanted to shoot a bow and arrow. Oh, see, it can be even simple things. <laughs> and when I was doing it at camp, I thought, I'm just like them. Just like them. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Not really, though. Well, what, what about you, though? What's been your biggest film or book inspiration? Well, it, this is the hard thing is I don't have an answer to it necessarily because the film that I would say is my favorite film, I can't necessarily say that it pointed me to do anything in particular. And, and what film is that? Well, Last of the Mohicans was my favorite oh, film. 
I don't know if I would consider it my favorite film now. You know how sometimes a movie becomes almost too familiar that you can't watch it anymore? Definitely. It's like that. But I went and saw that movie seven times in the theater. What's that one Daniel Day-Lewis line? It's like, I will... I will find you. I will find you. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far, I will find you. You submit, you be strong, you survive. You stay alive, no matter what occurs. <laughs> exactly the moment I was thinking yeah, of. Before. And then he jumps into a waterfall. Right. I totally have that on my mind. You know what is really ironic? Mm. That the dorky British guy that the heroine of A Room with a View is supposed to marry uh-huh. is played by the same actor, Daniel D. Lewis. Oh, really? Yeah. How interesting. He's one of the best actors out there, I think, right now. He really is. In fact, when he was preparing for the role of Les Mohicans, he... Um, he does a lot of running with a rifle in that movie, and apparently they used all the traditional riflery of that era, and so it was incredibly heavy. And so he jogged every morning with two of those, one in each hand, just to get in good enough shape to be able to run the distances for the film. I've also heard he's one of those guys that never breaks character, which would be kind of yeah. strange, wouldn't it? I think he's a method actor. Yeah. Does that mean he has like no real relationships? Or he should do a podcast. Because that would be hilarious, wouldn't it? If I was hosting with him, he'd be a different character like every yeah. every year. It's a great idea for a podcast. You know how sometimes actors, you, know, you see certain actors and they always seem to play the exact same character, mm-hmm. more or less? Yeah. Like Jack Nicholson, I'm sorry. In his younger years, no, but lately he plays the same character all the time. Even kind of like Al Pacino lately. Kind of always the same sort of character. Daniel Day-Lewis, he has played... From that evil New York gangster in the gangs of New York to the guy in my left foot to Sissel in A Room with a View to The Last of the Mohicans. Romantic figure. Yeah, I mean, no, but just so diverse. Like, so... It's incredible. Uh, yeah, he's, he's probably my favorite actor right now. It's so funny. Uh, this is something... Uh, this is a little off topic, but something Derek and I have been talking about a lot lately. Whenever we can't think of anything to talk about. We've been spending a lot of time together for the last few months. A friend of ours decided that they were going to watch the entire filmography of a particular actor from beginning to end. And they picked Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, that would drive me out of my mind. Oh, my God. Just the Kindercop films alone. Is it Kindercop? Uh, kindergarten Cop. Oh, just those alone. Jingle all the way. Oh, my God. Why would you pick Arnold Schwarzenegger? I think because he would have had a pretty significant evolution. When he got to the United States, he didn't speak English very well. Conan the Barbarian? Yeah. He didn't speak English very well. He would have been evolving over time to becoming the governor of California. They thought it would have a good narrative arc. At least that's what I assumed. I don't remember what our answer was. So we've been wanting to do this, and we've been trying to figure out who should we do. And we finally picked one, and we watched the first movie two nights ago. Oh, my gosh. I want to know who it is. You want to guess? Male? It's a male. Do I have 20 questions? <laughs> if you'd like. <laughs> hmm. Uh, Let's see. The podcast is already getting a little long. It's not Daniel Day-Lewis, eh? No. Anthony An- Hopkins? No, that, that's an interesting one. Here, I'll give you a clue. Okay. It has to be like a perfect blend between me and Derek's interests in movies. I tend to like action films that have good writing, that have a pace. That's why... Some movies that you and Suzanne liked in the past, I'd be like, oh my gosh, this is so long and so boring and nothing's happening. I've matured a bit. I can handle it a little better. But I like action movies, but I also like comedies. 
And then he would want something that's a little bit more like serious, has a really fascinating plot, really good acting, surrounded by good actors, like a lot of good actors in the plot. So how do you find really well-written narrative and comedy and action and put them all together? Bruce Willis. So close. <laughs> oh, think, think even more A-list. Even more A-list than Bruce Willis? Oh, is he someone like kind of recent? Because I don't know any of the recent people. He would have come up throughout our whole lives. Just don't say Jean-Claude Van Damme. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I knew you would. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Just for the sake of the podcast, Tom Cruise. Are you kidding? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we watched the very first movie that he was ever in a couple nights ago, which was a movie from, I think, 1981. The star of it was Brooke Shields. It was called Endless Love, which is a terrible title given how depressing the film was. And he is in it for one scene and probably has six lines. And he actually delivers them like he's a 40s gangster kid on the street. He's like, you know what I did once, you know? You know, he's got kind of that, hey, I got an idea for you, mister. <laughs> you know, and you're like, what in the world? Nobody else in the rest of the movie is talking that way. So that was like the character he chose to do. He's the pivotal part. The suggestion he makes leads to a whole bunch of terrible things happening. So, hey, Tom Cruise, we're off to a good start. I like that idea. I wouldn't have picked Tom Cruise because he's not one of my favorites. But, well, but he's not one of my favorites either. It's sort of like a pick somebody middle of the road. Yeah, yeah I, would have, I would have picked someone like Daniel Lee Lewis. In fact, now that you've mentioned it, now I want to do that, actually. I did something similar. I decided to watch every film that had ever won the Oscar for Best Film. And I didn't go in order what I could get from the library, really, because this was back in the day. I watched so many films that I would never have rented, ever, like Platoon. Oh, yeah. That's a film I would never pick up, ever. Then you start to watch it, and it's amazing. The Deer Hunter, mm -hmm. another one. I would never, I would, like, cringe to have to watch something like that. Turns out, it's amazing. And then a whole bunch of movies from, like, the 30s and 40s, you know, some of them are good. Some of them are kind of so-so, but it was such a cool thing. A couple I couldn't get my hands on. A few from the 30s, maybe one from the 50s. But of course, I did this back in the early 2000s. So I've missed sort of the last 10 years. You could probably find them online now. Probably, probably. I do want to eventually finish that quest. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. See, I think your problem with Daniel Day-Lewis would be that all the movies would be too serious. I like serious movies. <laughs> Don't you need to lighten up every now and then? If everything's like Last of the Mohicans and Gangs of New York, it could get kind of burdensome, don't you think? Yeah, the Room with a View is not burdensome. It's not, <laughs> it's not action by any means. It's not fast-paced, but it's a lighthearted movie. No, I'm not saying that. Okay, well, I get it. I love your idea. That's a really good idea. We've had trouble coming up with what a good woman would be. Meryl Streep. That's exactly what he said. She's amazing. I saw a couple of her films that, again, I would never have seen just because they won an Oscar. My God, she's good. She's not just good because now she's, you know, older and she's kind of an icon. She's always been good. Yeah, I just couldn't commit to her. And then he was like, well, what if we did somebody who was from early Hollywood? Which woman would you pick there? And I, I said I would definitely pick Betty Davis. Oh, she's great. Another great one, Barbara Stanwyck. I think that they didn't like each other, actually. They were both kind of like tough, <laughs> tough types. 
to answer the question, did last the Mohicans encourage me to do anything? I think maybe it encouraged me to be more. I don't even know. Like it, it encouraged you to run with two guns. <laughs> no, but I, I, it's so funny. I've never been able to describe what that movie is and why it meant so much to me. There was no direct link to it. It was almost became like a meditation. While I was sitting there watching it, I could just see how I wanted my life to be. But then if you were to say, okay, well then what did you see? What did you want your life to be? I wouldn't have had an answer for that. It just somehow resonated true to my heart. Does that make sense? Honestly, not being able to remember the plot of the film yeah. is kind of keeping me from understanding. And describing the plot of the film would be too long. Oh, I mean, it's I basically a, about the French and the English fighting in America. I don't even want to describe the whole movie. It's mainly about relationships. People caring for one another in a very dramatic, deadly situation. Not everything working out okay. So in some ways it's about what is... I, mean, I don't even want to say it's about what is love because that's so cheesy. I don't even know. How to love people in a very desperate situation. That's the best I can do and, I'll, and tomorrow I'm going to be like, that is not what that movie was about at all. <laughs> what about... A book that has changed your world. Well, we talked a little bit about Third Wish in our recommendations in the books episode. Third Wish had influence in, to me in just different games to play. Like one of the ways Derek and I got to know each other was by playing a game that exists in that book, which is called Left Right Surprise. It's basically a game that you play when you're out taking a walk. And this, by the way, is not life changing, but it is an interesting way to get to know somebody. You're out taking a walk. If, say, you and I were walking, we'd start out and say, Tiffany, what direction do you want to go in? And you would say, left. So we'd take a, a left. And while we were walking in that direction, you would be telling me about something that you know a lot about, but that I would not think to ask you about. Whatever little details. And then whenever we get to a point where either the sidewalk ends or you've just kind of come to the end of, I can't really think of anything else to say about this topic... <laughs> Then you switch direction, right? And you take a right. And then the other person has to tell you an answer to a question that you wouldn't think to ask. Just keep doing that as you make your way. And the surprise is that while you're walking along, you haven't been necessarily paying attention to where you're going. And so where you end up at the end of the walk is the surprise. Are you at a cafe? Are you at a park? Are you at some place you've never been to in the city that you live in? That's awesome. I'm going to try that. It is a really interesting game. Yeah. I wouldn't say that that was life-changing, but that is something that was directly from a book that I spent a lot of time doing. Cool. I don't have a good answer. Maybe I'll come up with it later. Maybe you'll read the book tonight. Maybe. I know. I have to go to the bookstore after I leave you today because I've read all the books I brought with me. Should we leave it there? I think so. We've been all over the map. Aurelio, get your answer ready. And I guess until next time. This is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Kitty Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Bye. Thanks for all the ways you support us. Give us a good rating on iTunes, maybe five stars if you like the show. It will help other people discover that we exist. Thank you. You're the best. Visit the donate page on our website, thebittersweetlife.net. All donations are reserved exclusively for the creation of audio content. Your financial support keeps us strong. Thank you.